Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It, where we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. On our show, we've spoken to a few women who've made career pivots and found incredible success in their new path. But our guest today really takes the cake. Not many people can say they've gone from high-level CIA officer to founder and CEO of a beloved sleepwear brand. In 2015, Emily Hakade left a successful career of more than a decade as a CIA officer to prioritize time with her family. After a near-death experience on a plane, She decided she couldn't continue to be in such a high-risk career with three little boys waiting for her at home. Well, today, she now has four boys and is the founder and CEO of the luxury pajama company Petite Plume. Petite Plume has not only been profitable since its first year, the company actually doubled its revenue every year since launch and brought in over $10 million in revenue in 2022. Petite Bloom is in over 400 stores across the U.S., including Nordstrom, Neiman Marcus, and Saks Fifth Avenue. The pajamas are coveted by the royal family, Gwyneth Paltrow, Anderson Cooper, Miranda Kerr, and Kourtney Kardashian, just to name a few. Emily, I have to say, I'm so impressed. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. It is my pleasure. So, okay, let's start with your life in the CIA. Was this something you were preparing for your whole life? Did you grow up expecting, I'm going to be a CIA officer? How did that happen? I did not grow up wanting to work with the CIA. I'm not even sure when I was small, I knew exactly what that was. I had a passion for travel, for living overseas, languages. When I was a little girl, my mom told me I used to wander around in the backyard and pretend I spoke foreign languages. (laughs) Then I begged my parents to let me study overseas when I was very young. 12 years old, I started asking my parents, can I please be an exchange student? They finally relented when I was 14 and I was an exchange student in France. I taught myself French as much as I could and then picked it up quickly once I was there. So even before starting college, I spoke two languages fluently. I picked up German when I was in college. And then I wanted to make an impact with my life. So my first stop was actually the White House. And after the White House, I, I didn't enjoy the White House as much as I thought because it was so political. I was a step above an intern. I did get paid, not very much. But what struck me about the White House is that it was always the conversation of whether you were on the left or whether you were on the right. Uh-huh. And this was well before recent years where it became so acrimonious. But 
what I really attracted me to the State Department and the agency is that we were all working for the same team. We were all moving forward toward the same goal. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was very appealing and very refreshing. And the impact of the work was really significant. Again, that really attracted me. So I had joined the agency before September 11th, and I had started learning Russian on September 10th, 2001. Uh, I had one class of Russian, uh-huh. and after that, I learned Arabic and was in Iraq right after the invasion in 2003. And so what was that work like? I know you can't really talk about what the work specifically was, but that sense of urgency or and passion, and all, what was that like being there at that Very time? Er- like, the mission was clear, and that was important. 9-11 had happened. It was all very fresh in our minds. And so we were making an impact. We were working really hard with all the different government agencies to make sure that there were no more attacks on U.S. soil. If you would have told me in 2001 that we wouldn't have another attack on U.S. soil. Here we are in 2023. In 2023, we would not have believed you because we had to be right 100% of the time. The bad guys only have to be right once. Uh Uh-huh. Well, Excellent work so far. (laughs) There's Um, a lot of people out there working tirelessly all the time to make sure that we're safe. So you weren't really preparing for this job. What did your parents think? They knew you were in the CIA, but what did you tell them? I want to say nobody knew. Nobody knew. in the agency when I started. My parents didn't know. My roommates didn't know. No one knew. My brothers didn't know because that was part of it. When you first do join If you are undercover, you're under the deepest cover Uh early on in your career. So that must have been very hard to keep a secret for that long. And what did you tell them you did? I told them I worked for the government and I had worked for the government for a very long time. So I think it was very unclear to many when I actually did make the transition over from working for the White House or the State Department over to the agency. It really wasn't that difficult. I think if I had to look at the grand scheme of things, it was much more difficult to roll back my cover and start telling people what I really did than it was to just continue with that path of, oh, I work for the government. It is really tough when you have a cover that has protected you for years to suddenly turn around and start talking about what you really did. Uh It makes you feel a lot more vulnerable. Tell us about that. What was the impetus that made you decide, first, I have to get out? And then, I don't know this process of rolling back your cover. Is that Mm -hmm. the lingo? Yeah. How does one do that? (laughs) You have to ask permission. Okay. You have to ask permission. You can't just decide one day that, hey, I'm going to tell everybody. It was motivated by the fact my husband retired as well, and he was also working for the agency. So you were like Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) What motivated you to leave this job that sounded like you loved, but I know you were married, you started a family, and yet... You still did that. Yeah. I think before, I think one of the big motivators were my children. I worked in counterterrorism for a long time, and I was fearless. That changed a great deal in 2008 when I had my first son. We were living in the Middle East, and, you know, some of the risks that we take naturally in the line of work suddenly seemed greater when you have somebody home waiting for you to come, for mom to come home at the end of the night. And I'd done this for a really long time, and it kind of—there were a lot of natural risks. You know, I would have to leave to go to a meeting when my children were home with high fevers, and we thought, 
I remember very clearly leaving my second son. He couldn't have been more than two. And we had been arranging for this very important meeting. And when you're arranging for a very important meeting with possibly somebody affiliated with a terrorist network, you can't just call them on the phone and say, hey, my kid's sick. Can we do this tomorrow? (laughs) It really is. There's a lot of people that are involved in this, making this meeting happen. And what you could get from this meeting could protect Americans. It could save lives. You don't know what you're walking into on some of these. So you have to continue to move forward with this. So I remember looking at my feverish two-year-old and looking at my husband and saying, if he has malaria, I can try to come back tonight. But I had to make this meeting. So there were a lot of situations that certainly weren't ideal once you have kids. And, And it sort of climaxed with, I was going to a high threat meeting on an island in the Indian Ocean. And As one is likely to do. Yes. yes. Go, yes. go on. You know, it's your typical story. <laughs> and my plane started to go out of control. And there was a storm, and it was a single prop plane, and it started to veer sideways and head toward the water, and the lights went out, and people were screaming. And as the plane is starting to spin toward the water, all I could see were the faces of my three little children at the time, and the youngest one wasn't one yet. And I felt profoundly sad. I felt profoundly sad that my kids were going to grow up without a mom because this isn't something that they signed up for. I signed up to take these risks. It's something when it's you and when you're putting yourself in those positions. It's something else when something's going to impact your children so profoundly. Was this sort of an immediate, wow, this is really an epiphany I'm done. By, well, by the, the grace of God, the plane corrected, because, or I wouldn't be here right now. And it was very much an epiphany. After that, I had, I had had all these business ideas. You know, I was still taking risks. I was still meeting with people. I had friends die. One of my friends, Jen, died in Coast. She had three children at home. And she was meeting somebody who had a suicide vest on. You know, these, What does died in Coast mean? Coast, I'm sorry, Coast is a base in Afghanistan. Oh, okay. And she, seven agency officers died in Afghanistan when somebody they were working with showed up with a suicide vest on. And it was a very real and present danger. Uh-huh. So I had all these business ideas sort of percolating inside my head, but there's never a good time to start a business. Certainly not when you have a full-time job, three <laughs> small children, and you're living in East Africa. Uh-huh. So, but that sort of moment on the plane was a moment of real clarity where there never is a good time to start a business. And that sort of spurred me forward to take those first steps to launching Petite Plume, which I did immediately after I got home uh-huh. from that trip. So that was already in your mind. You already have this idea. It seems to be such a kind of odd offshoot to, have you always loved pajamas? Was What was it that made you think, this is what I'm going to do next? From my perspective, I thought that there was, first of all, a gap in the U.S. market, which is, you know, you think that the market is so vast that if there were a gap, somebody would have filled it already. But in my head, there were two motivating factors. One is I figured out how many pajamas I had to sell to replace my government salary. Uh-huh. And two, I think there was this idea of home. When you're In your pajamas, you're home and you're safe. The more that I think about it, I think that was something that was an underlying factor as we were going from something that was a a job that was inherently unsafe. Uh And transitory migrant and all of that. Yes. We lived in nine different countries in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa in over 15-year period in between Uh my jobs for the government. So that part I get, you picture home and you picture family and sort of serenity and stability. I get that. 
okay, so you have this business mind that kind of clicks in. You're like, I can do this. How did you start this business? How did you fund this business? That part's amazing to me also. Started very small, Uh did not take a salary for many years like many entrepreneurs do. I paid my first employee before I collected a salary myself. How did I start it? I started, I actually got on Alibaba and I looked at a bunch of different factories. I think I got samples from 10 different factories, quality, pricing, negotiation, really started very, very small and launched with a warehouse, third-party logistics company in the U.S. It was always going to be a U.S.-based company. So we had all of our products sent there. So when we launched our website, it was all shipping directly, selling to the United States, shipping from a warehouse in the United States, but I was running it from East Africa. Really? Okay. (laughs) Which Uh is, if you think it's tough to start a business from the United States, try it from East Africa, where my very first computer where I would launch the company from was attached to an antenna on top of the house where when the wind blew, the internet would go down and Uh the wind blew a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So who were you speaking to on the other end at your warehouse? Was oh, it, you had a, an employee that was just great? That We hired it. It was a contracted company. It was a mom-and-pop warehouse in Wisconsin initially that we grew out of very quickly. Our orders started. In the first year, we were in 100 stores. How did that happen? Because we really hit this gap in the market. Like We started as a children's luxury sleepwear company. We made it in these very traditional European styles. We make our pajamas without any chemicals. All of our fabrics are yarn dyed. So when we actually got to market, there was a runway for us. There was some white space, and I think the quality was recognized right away. And it was later that people then approached us the following year and said, will you please make adult pajamas? The quality is so good. I was crushed at first because I had wanted to do 100% cotton pajamas for kids, but you can't do that without dipping it in chemicals. And that was a non-starter. So we created a fabric that is made of the highest quality cotton and blended with an inherently flame-retardant fiber. Think of a tweaked wool. Uh And our first prototypes were made actually in a fireman's factory or where they make fireman's uniforms. So it started with that. We got them softer. We perfected it. And that's why when we got to market, I think we really had something special. I want to come back. There's so much to ask you, but we're going to take a quick break. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Emily Hikati, CEO of luxury sleepwear brand Petite Plume. Okay, so tell us about the moment your brand went viral. That was really quite extraordinary. It was April 23rd, 2016. I can remember the day because it's my oldest son's birthday. And it was quite a time in my life. I was back in the U.S. having my fourth son. Um, My father had just passed. And my husband was back in Africa because that's just the way it is. I was medevaced out to have the baby. And I was dealing with my mom who was grieving and juggling four little kids. And I woke up one day and I saw that Prince George was wearing our pajamas when he met President Obama. So you didn't know that was going to happen? No, no idea. How did he get them? Well, we looked back and we saw that there were several packages that were sent urgently to the UK, but it certainly wasn't sent was to... Was it like Prince George, Prince George his Royal Highness, Kate Middleton? Is that, <laughs> exactly. Didn't no, say that. No, okay. it did not. <laughs> so when we looked back, we could see several packages going overseas, but we knew nothing ahead of time. And it was really something because the brand took off quite quickly after that. Oh my God. I had no idea that you didn't know that was going to happen. So you get a call, look who's, look who's wearing your pajamas. Uh-huh. That was the serendipity <laughs> for sure. That was really something and exactly what, it couldn't have come at a better time. Let's just put it that way. Uh, Did you feel like, thanks, Dad? Yes. Yes, I did. Yes, okay. I was a little part of that. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. That is kind of amazing. Okay, so you bootstrapped this business. Did you ever consider taking funding? You wanted to grow and... You know, I used to dream about taking funding. I used to really dream about having somebody on board so I wouldn't have to work quite so hard. I was doing everything. I was doing the shipping. I was doing the production. I was doing every single aspect. I was doing customer service. I would use Skype to do phone calls from East Africa after my kids went to bed to customers who had questions. It was really tough. And we were approached by investors from New York who said all the right things and smiled, took my hand and said, we're going to make this an amazing company. And when I read the contract, I actually had an attorney who specializes in these type of contracts review it. And there were some clauses in there that were definitely not in the best interest of mine or, you know, the company. So that was a real eye-opening moment for me that it had an anti-dilution clause in it. So if we had continued to take on money, there were a few other clauses in there that were sort of didn't seem to be straightforward. So the anti-dilution clause protects the investors. They don't get diluted. But you, exactly. you do if you take extra exactly. money. So all the and, and burdens on you. The way that the contract was written in the end, the attorney was like, I wouldn't go into agreement. They're trying to see what they can sneak by you, et cetera, et cetera. And that mm-hmm. wasn't what I had been hoping for at the time. It was as devastated as I was at that moment. It was one of the greatest things to happen to me because the company got bigger and bigger uh, and bigger. And you, and you kind of, it was so difficult because growth takes capital. So I had to take out loans to cover the growth. So hypothetically speaking, if it's you hit a million in revenue and it takes you 500000 to get there, you're thinking, oh my God, you're walking away with 500000 in profit. But that's not the case. Right. Because next year, you're going to hit $2 million and you need a million to do that, and you've only got 500000 Right. Now you're you short. You need to feed the, mo- the monster of growth. Exactly. And uh-huh. so as you continue to grow, those loans get bigger. And a lot of banks also won't back women business owners and so on. And so we, ours was a very slow climb without any investors coming from behind. Uh But in the end, it was really lucky because right now I'm still 100% owner and our revenue numbers are well on their way. We're in the eight figures already Uh heading to nine. Wow. All right. So you funded this. 
Can I ask, how much money did you put in at the beginning? Although it's kind of a rolling thing. It is a rolling thing where you're just thinking, oh, my God. I remember sitting on the phone and doing the very first big bank transaction. And I think it was for $25,000. And it was from my savings account. And switched over and said, okay, this is happening. Because you get everything lined up, all these little expenses and all of these samples. And you're doing all these little things. And then finally, there's that one big transaction. It's like, are we doing this? Yes, we're doing this. And from there, we were off to the races. So how do you get into a Nordstrom's or a Saks? You just literally knock on their door or on their buyer's door. How do you do that? I think there's a lot of different ways to do it. I think you can go to trade shows. There's various trade shows throughout the country. New York is a big one, Atlanta, and so on. Or you can also approach them, send samples, find out who it is. You can be very tenacious. Mm -hmm. I think tenaciousness in in all professions are always well Uh served. Right. Just ask. Just ask. Just ask. Okay. So you have these two very disparate, very unusual careers, both of them. But do you think there's similarities between the entrepreneurship and being in the CIA? You talk about being tenacious. Yes. I think that there's an enormous capacity to handle risk. I think some people are risk averse. I think that is sort of, you need a little bit of risk appetite in order to be an entrepreneur. I think you need to be able to think on your feet. I think you need to be able to mitigate risk when you look at the longer term. What is the positive outcome of this and what is the possible negative outcome and figure out exactly which level you're willing to Mm -hmm. absorb. Right. We call it risk-reward. Risk-reward, exactly. What's the risk-reward ratio here? Yes. Uh If it's as you continue to move forward, whether it's counterterrorism or whether it's in your own business. Mm -hmm. I also think it's really important in both of them, relationships, networking, taking care of your people. I think there's a lot of those things that really go forward in both careers, Uh as different as they may be. Right. I'm sure you can't say what a super stressful situation was in your prior job. This job. Tell us about a pajama fiasco. You're like, oh, this is a disaster. I got to fix this. Well, we got off of our busiest holiday season last year. And one of our biggest challenges from last Christmas was that we grew too fast for our fulfillment center. We have an amazing fulfillment center that we've worked with for five years. And last year we grew too fast for them. So after Black Friday, it was taking them three weeks to ship our uh-huh. product to our customers, which just is completely unacceptable. So customers were calling. It created a bit of a customer service nightmare. And you can't say, oh, it's not us. It's this other company. Right. We the, had to yeah. absorb it. So it was very ironic because our fulfillment center was shipping Neiman Marcus orders right away and Nordstrom orders right away because we'll get penalized. You know, it's like a $25 penalty for each order that doesn't ship within a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. So our fulfillment center was shipping those first. Then a customer calls and says, oh, you're just too small of a company. I got the order right away from Neiman Marcus. Uh Same exact warehouse, (laughs) but they were sending those out first and our own customers were getting backed up. So we had to deal with that right away. We tackled that immediately so that that won't ever happen again. But at the same time, are those customers going to come back? And then we finally made it through our busy holiday season. Uh And in January, we had a a truck get stolen. All of the inventory, it was over a million dollars worth of inventory, our highest order of 100% silk ever. And it made it to the loading dock and disappeared. Wow. And we were insured. Uh However, you know, even if you're insured for a million dollars, the cost of goods, that at sale would have been several millions of of dollars worth Uh of sales. Not to mention we also had a collaboration in January where we were missing the product Uh with a big company that we were launching at all. But in the grand scheme of things, 
Nobody was uh-huh. getting shot at. Uh-huh. But nobody was in danger at any point. So I think that whereas many people might have taken that and been really stressed out about the missing truck and all of the stuff, you just have to take <laughs> it all in The missing truck and all our inventory gone. But, you know, what's a girl to do? I, I mean, <laughs> that's great that you look at everything from that perspective. Yeah. I mean, it really keeps you calm, I would think. Yeah. Uh, you had to have been just able to be calm in any situation to have been CIA officer, I would imagine. Yes. There are people who are better in certain situations of stress than others. Uh-huh. How do they know whether you're going to be that type of person? Can you tell us what the interview process is? I can't talk about the interview process, but it is a very lengthy training process. That I can tell you. Uh-huh. It is rigorous. So it is many several months of training where they do put you under stressful situations uh-huh. to see how you respond. Okay, so I'm picturing like the training montage in the Life of Emily movie, but is there ever a point where you're like, wow, this is too hard. I can't do this. Was it ever too hard in training? No. I was young. I had more energy than I can even think about now as I'm the mom of four children and Uh running a business. So I look back on that and it was my job for many years just to be that person. And you're working really, really long days and you are dedicating a lot to this job in this country. And it's something I'm very proud of. And it's interesting because people have asked me what's harder, counterterrorism or running your own company. Uh-huh. You think that's an easy answer. You think you know the answer. Right. I but think I do, but no, I maybe I don't. It, it is really tough to run your own company day to day. And one of the big differences is when you are getting ready, when you work for the agency and you have a big operation, whether it's a meeting that might last a couple hours or you have to do things before the meeting, you have to do things after the meeting. It could last several days. Whatever it is, when it's done, you have a very tedious and boring job of writing up cables, writing up intel reports, writing up everything having to do with the meeting. When you're running your own company, every day is something new and there's a certain stress level, especially when you're st- you have a startup and it feels like everything is new and that something could take your company from... Uh It's fragile. It's a very fragile company. Just like babies are very fragile when they're their youngest, I think that's when companies need your most attention as well. Uh So I think that there would be days where you might not be at a 10, you might not be at a stress level 10 that you might be if you were in Baghdad, but you could be at an 8 or a 9 if a truck goes missing or if you've got all these different irons in the fire or you're handling multiple things at once. But that is every day. You're between, let's say, 5 and 7 every single day versus... Where the agency, it might be, uh-huh. you might be at a 10 and then a 1. Uh-huh. So it might average to a 7, but it's a different life. Interesting. I could use a little okay. more one day. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I mean, I have four kids as well, and it is absolutely exhausting to have four kids and to have a career. And your husband has a career. And those can be very, very stressful days that just don't end. That's why I'm drinking a large cup of coffee right now. <laughs> I get it. I yeah have a bit of a coffee addiction problem myself. Mm-hmm. But I, it's interesting. It's I, I always people say, "How do you do it?" I always say, "Give up everything to get more help. Give up food, clothing, shelter to get more help to get you through." Having resources, if you can, if you can, not everyone can, but any extra help you can get is so worth it. Mm-hmm. I think. 
I think that's great advice. It really is. The game changer for us, we were losing. We had moved from overseas back to the U.S. in 2018, and my husband and I were running just as fast as we could, and we were still just falling behind. And for me, the game changer was, as we started, this sounds crazy, is sending out our wash because yeah, they measure right. it by the pound uh-huh. for 50 bucks a week. Even with four boys, we could have that done instead of that endless pile right. that was constantly it's staring at me. It's such a Sisyphean task. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> Of laundry, yeah. <laughs> that was the game changer for me that we needed at the time because we were, uh-huh. we just, there weren't enough hours in the day. I couldn't work anymore and sleep any less at that point. Yeah. So we sort of made it, it was a really big transition to go from life overseas to life back in the U.S. That was tough because overseas, there's just a different pace of life. For example, all of my four children went to the French school. When you are overseas, they say, what sport do you want to play? Soccer, soccer, or soccer? So my kids chose soccer. And they would go to school and they'd have soccer practice after school. They'd come home. We'd have dinner. They'd do homework done. You know, soccer games on Saturday. Sunday was usually a nice barbecue at a friend's house, a neighbor's house. It was a very calm life. Then you move back to the U.S. with four kids, four boys. And just for all four boys to be in, for example, soccer, we would have one practice 30 minutes that way, another practice 40 minutes that way for kid number two. Kid number three would have it that evening. So we're just running from when they get done with school. And the kicker was, is my husband would leave at 6 a.m. on the train and come back at 6 p.m. because he was working downtown in classified material. So even during the pandemic, he was gone. And I was now running a company, e-learning for children, and doing my best not to lose my mind. And I remember having this smugness when I lived overseas. I was like, oh, I've lived overseas. I'm not going to be that busy when I get back to the U.S. And it's totally untrue. The boys were eager to come back. My oldest had lived in Africa for six years. He came back and wanted to play hockey. He he did great at the tryouts. He didn't know how to stop, but he was really (laughs) fast. Uh So he wanted to play hockey. My kids have done basketball, baseball, football, soccer, you name it. So it's been a wild few years once we kind of got through the pandemic. But the advantage is, is that we do have wonderful stores like a Costco or some of our regular grocery stores. For me, it's Mariano's. And you can go to one place and get all of your groceries. You cannot do that in most developing countries. You have to go to the butcher to get your meat. You have to go to the milk store to get your you know, milk. Uh-huh. You have to go to the vegetable market to get your vegetables. So it's a, a much lengthier process just to get your shopping uh-huh. done. Trader Joe's is really, oh, Trader I mean, Joe's. something really extraordinary. I would have given my left arm for a Trader Joe's <laughs> overseas, especially with four kids. Uh-huh. So, okay, do you feel like you're, you're home now? Yeah. You're home. And how does that feel? Amazing. Uh-huh. I looked at my son the other day in the car and I said, Camden, my oldest, I said, we've given you a hometown. Before he would pause when somebody said, where are you from? He always said, well, I'm from the U.S., even though he had spent so much of his life overseas. He had lived in the Middle East. He was born while we were in the Middle East. He took his first steps while we were in Asia and then spent his last six years in Africa before moving to Chicago. So he would always pause and say, well, I'm from the U.S. Well, where in the U.S.? And then he'd hesitate. And he'd say, well, I'm from Wisconsin because he was born in Wisconsin, which is where I'm from, um, because we had been medevaced for him as well. Sometimes when you're living in uh, a developing country, you have the right to then to fly back just for the delivery. All right. Let me just pause there for one second. When you say medevaced, it's not like you're in labor coming, flying back or is it? If you're planning to leave the country, you have to leave the country by 34 weeks and you have to have a doctor's uh-huh. 
uh-huh. you know, with that you. you. Uh-huh. And then you have to, but my yeah. husband did not have that leave. Uh-huh. So my husband would stay in whatever country we were. I would get medevaced with our dependents. So uh-huh. now I'm oh, so you heavily have pregnant. The one boy, the two boys. <laughs> yes. Okay. And he has to stay away because yeah. at the time the government wasn't even paying for the husband to fly back at all. They didn't look at the husband as being a necessary part of labor. That the woman can do it on her own. Well, you there's know, some scientific part of that. <laughs> yes. Depends on the husband. <laughs> yes, right. exactly. So my husband flew in for our first one, flew in from the Middle East, and my water broke two hours after he arrived. Uh-huh. And my, wow. my son was two weeks early. So then he had to use his leave. So we were trying to time it. So then he came back early for the second one, and we just sat and looked at my stomach and waited. <laughs> and it was like, come on, here we go. We're using my leave. I only have two weeks of leave. And then he has to go back overseas, and then I can't leave with a newborn until six weeks. Uh-huh. And then as soon as we could, we flew back overseas because I was without my husband for so much of this. While other moms uh-huh. are creating a baby room. Uh-huh. You know, and they're all excited and they're doing that. Most of us that lived overseas never had that opportunity. Uh-huh. Is there a sort of community that you have? Overseas. Overseas. A wonderful expat uh-huh. community. Because so many people are in transit all the time. Usually an embassy transitions over. A third of the embassy is transitioning every year. So you arrive and chances are a lot of other people just arrived and you're looking for friends, they're looking for friends, and these are a network that are going to be with you when your kids get sick or when there's an emergency or even for Thanksgiving because your own family is so far away. Uh-huh. You know, we would always invite like the Marine security guards over because everybody was so far away from home at the holidays. Wow, it's such a, such a very different way to live. Okay, before we get to our lightning round, we're going to take a quick break. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you, and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. And we're back with our lightning round. Okay, so here we go. You might know this as Would You Rather. The only challenge is you can't think about it. You just have to say whatever comes to your mind at that moment. Okay, ready? Ready. Pajamas or rope? Pajamas. Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Alarm clock or sleep in? Sleep in. (laughs) 
alone up late or the first one up in the morning? First one up in the morning. French or German? I know you speak both. French. Okay, then I could also say Arabic or English. Definitely better in English. (laughs) Okay, Mission Impossible or Zero Dark Thirty? Zero Dark Thirty. That was a good one, yeah. Gingham or Stripes? Stripes. Okay, CIA or CEO? Both. Oh, okay. That's a tough one. You like I the mean, C-suite. Good. The C-suite. I like anything. Any okay. three letters that start with C. <laughs> Risk or comfort? Comfort. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. Okay. What are you reading right now? Oh, my gosh. I am reading Chip Wilson's story, uh, and then I'm reading also Shoe Dog. It's so good. Philip Knight's book. Philip yeah. Knight's book. I love it. Yes. There, I, I really love uh, Kendra Scott wrote a great one recently. I do love nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I love memoirs. I love learning about people. I find real life is as fascinating as fiction. Yes, I agree. Well, I love them both, actually. Okay, here's the last one. It is, what's the best investment you ever made, and what's the worst investment? But it's a very broad definition of investment. Best investment I ever made were my children. Uh-huh. You know, that is every day. Yeah. I am the proudest of that. So uh-huh. that, that was definitely my best investment. I can see you get just thinking about them. You get, yeah. I know. It's crazy, emotion. isn't it? It's, no. I, we're talking about things that are very important to me, and I yeah. don't often do that. My day-to-day, I'm usually talking about sales targets and profit margins and all of that. Uh-huh. So it is sort of to think at the big picture of things that are very close to me. Absolutely the best investment is my children. Uh-huh. The worst investment? Hmm. Well, that's good that you don't have one that comes to mind. I'm trying to think of something pithy like this uh-huh. car that I bought uh-huh. that crapped out. I think everything, like the company has been worth every penny of time and energy. You know, kids are the best investment. Petit Plume's been an amazing investment. What an adventure. Uh-huh. The, the agency was a wonderful investment of time and, and and everything that I learned and how I got to meet people. So what's my worst investment? Uh, that's really actually a tough question. I'm going to think about that. Okay. Hopefully it's in the past and not to come because you don't you don't seem very troubled by one in the past. So. I'm an optimist. Can mm-hmm. you tell that I'm an yes. optimist? Like things that happen <laughs> badly, they sort of they like just ride right off, off my back. back. Yeah. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us for How She Does It. And thank you so much to Emily Hikade for sharing her journey from the CIA to CEO. Thank you, Karen. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. Onward.